So, uh, yeah, so this is biblical gender. Here, here we are in the 21st century. Um, I would be lying if I, didn't, if I didn't tell you I was a bit nervous about this whole process. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading and studying, and I uh, went out and got COVID in the hopes that somebody else would take this class. But uh, last, um, I asked a lot of people, and nobody really wanted to teach it, so here we are. Um, so, uh, seriously, uh, this is a vitally important topic um, that's uh, really, really important for us to dig into. Um, and so, while uh, some of you maybe show up really, really confused and um, really uh, ready to dive in, some of you probably equally show up saying, this is really not that complicated, what's the big deal? Um, and we're going to try to navigate both of those. So I'd love to start, um, I know we've prayed a lot, and I'm really thankful for Ashley leading us through that. But um, I'm going to pray uh, also as we jump in. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, with subject matter that can very easily get theological and theoretical, I pray that you would give us the grace to see people that are behind all of these topics. And so... Help us to, like Jesus, be people who are full of grace and truth. To not back away from what's true, but to also uh, live in a way that expresses love and grace to people in the world around us. And so God, I pray that you would, uh, tonight, as well as the next three weeks, uh, that you would guard my mind, my words, and my spirit as I lead, and for all of us, God, that you would help us to hear, uh, help us to hear your word and what's true, um, and help us to hear um, the, the love that you have for the people around us. And so God, help us to see through that lens of the love that you've given us for uh, the world that's, that's surround us, surrounding us. And so God, go before us tonight, I pray and uh, lead us, uh, give me strength, and uh, lead us forward, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, I should also probably admit that this is the latest I've been up for almost a week, so if I fall asleep up here, just somebody come up and wake me up. All right, um, so if you were with us in the fall, uh, we did a fall class in October on biblical sexuality, and uh, originally the goal was to do sexuality and gender together, and as I started to study both, I just said there's just no chance we're going to be able to do that. Um, uh, the, the other thing that I found along the way is that they don't actually relate as much as you would think they would, and so I think you're going to see that as we, uh, as we talk through this a little bit. Um, they're, not, uh, they're not completely distinct, but they're also... Uh, not completely tied together. So uh, the concept of sexuality that we talked about, we talked, uh, uh, I'm not going to go back, you can uh, find that there's podcasts somewhere. I'm not sure where they are, but there's audio recordings somewhere out there. Um, so uh, if, if you are really interested in those and haven't listened to them, call the church office and they can tell you where they are. I don't know where they are, but I know that they exist somewhere. Uh, but in summary, with sexuality, we talked about uh, the idea of formation, the, the, real, the, the real question in sexuality was what are we being formed into? Because our sexuality, particularly a man and a woman in a marriage relationship, is intended to reflect Christ and the church. That's the, the, the marriage, the institution of marriage set up by God is intended to reflect Christ and the church. And so there's this formational element that comes from that process 
of uh, becoming a reflection, uh, imperfect one always, but a reflection of Christ in the church. That's sexuality. Gender, as I think you'll see a little bit tonight and then particularly as we unfold these over the next couple weeks, gender is intended not to reflect Christ in the church, but actually to reflect God himself. That we are, as two genders, intended to together reflect the glory of God. And so uh, gender is vitally important from that perspective in terms of uh, representing God, uh, not just to one another, but to the world around us. And that's going to be a key part of what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. We're intended to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. Um, so let, let me just give you a, a, a brief overview of how we're going to handle the class, and then we'll get into your note sheet and start to buzz through a whole bunch of information. So tonight is uh, overview. Uh, we're going to try to set the stage with some information that I think will be really helpful for where we're going, and so uh, we won't dive deeply into a lot of the stuff tonight. Um, as In terms of questions, uh, on the screen as well as on your note sheet, there's uh, my uh, cell phone number and my email address. I would love for you to text or email questions over the first couple weeks. We're not going to do uh, microphones going around. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons for that, but uh, until we have a good sense of kind of who we are and where we're at, I'd, I want to be careful in the way that we're asking questions. I'm glad for you to ask any questions that you want, but rather than making this a dialogical class that could go sideways quite quickly, um, we're going to make this a little bit more monologue, and then I will uh, get your questions and uh, feed them back. On the fourth week, so that's uh, whatever that is, the 20-something, so whatever the, the fourth uh, Wednesday of February is, uh, that class is going to be open for questions. So we'll actually have some microphones out there. Um, I am going to ask you to ask questions into the microphone because of the recording, so we will be recording these sessions uh, so that they can be useful for other people, and so that if you would prefer not to be on recording asking the questions you're asking. Um, they can come uh, by email and text. I'll be checking those along the way. I'll reserve time at the end of each class, except for maybe tonight, I'm not sure, but the other classes, uh, to answer questions. And I already have a couple. You're welcome to send them. So you don't have to wait and send them day of. You can send them at any point. Uh, I'll collate them and, uh, and try to work my way through those. Um, we'll. We'll hit a lot of that stuff as we go, but that's the way we're going to handle questions. Uh, we're, we're not going to hit everything. This is a very complex issue, and it's an ever-changing issue, but I am trying to hit the things that are most pressing for uh, the world that we live in right now, the world that you guys are operating in, and so that's what we're really going to kind of be uh, moving towards. So tonight, the goal is just to set the stage, and so that starts with this transgender moment that we live in. So I just want to give you a real brief uh, history. I'm not going to take a lot of time. Uh, some of these things are things you know. Some of these things maybe are things you don't know. But uh, I want to just kind of walk you through uh, where we've been. So I'm going to start in 2010. Uh, interestingly, for the transgender movement, there's not a ton to talk about before 2010. There's a little bit. But in terms of uh, the public face of transgenderism, you really don't start to see a lot of activity in the public sphere until, until 2010. And so 2010 was the, the first uh, kind of movement out of the government that was a uh, Dear Colleague letter that came out from the Department of Education in the uh, area of civil rights that was redefining sex identity 
as gender identity for uh, Title IX purposes. So if you don't know what that is, we don't need to unpack that tonight, but basically uh, that, that kind of uh, set the stage for all kinds of stuff that was to come. It was this first kind of movement that started to send ripples primarily into the sports world, actually. It was where a lot of the conversation started to happen, but um, it did not stay there for long. So I'm gonna now kind of unpack really quickly where we're going from there. You have a timeline, so you can kind of follow along. Uh, 2011, a documentary called Becoming Chaz uh, got all kinds of awards at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, Chaz was the very uh, famous, uh, very famous now son, uh, born daughter of Cher and Sonny Bono, who uh, transitioned from a woman to a man very publicly uh, through that documentary. And uh, he became, uh, Chaz became the first kind of public face of transgenderism. Um, Orange is the New Black, uh, some of you know that, uh, that Netflix series that came out, that debuted in 2013, Wildly popular, and, and not only was it wildly popular, it was the first very popular uh, uh, movie or series that was really in the public eye with an openly transgender lead. And so uh, that lead is a transgender woman named Laverne Cox, so you can go down to 2014. Uh, Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time Magazine as Orange is the New Black became uh, a, a little bit more uh, in the public eye. Um, she was on the cover of Time Magazine, nominated for an Emmy, and named Woman of the Year by Glamour Magazine. So um, this marks the first time that someone born a man uh, was named Woman of the Year. Um, if you go down to 2015, it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the last time because uh, Bruce Jenner was interviewed by Diane Sawyer in early 2015 uh, before Bruce Jenner became known as Caitlyn Jenner. So that was in, uh, I believe, July of 2015. Uh, Bruce Jenner, the famous uh, uh, Olympian and athlete, who was uh, in his later years at that point, appears on the Vanity Fair cover with the headline, Call Me Caitlin, and uh, that led into a pretty short-lived uh, reality series, but, uh, but Caitlyn Jenner really became the, uh, the prominent face of transgenderism and was named Woman of the Year by Glam Glamour Magazine that year, which uh, was two years in a row that men who had transitioned to women became uh, Women of the Year. Fortune Magazine declared 2015 to be the moment when transgender went mainstream. And uh, that's definitely, that's the point where if you look back and you start to see like where uh, the culture as a whole really started to pick up steam in the transgender movement, it was 2015 that that really started to move forward. Another Dear Colleague letter uh, came out. This was combined uh, by the Department of Education and the Department of Justice. Uh, in 2016, and that was mandating the public schools allow access to sex-specific facilities based on gender identity rather than biological sex. So uh, that's, that's fascinating on a lot of levels. I was actually listening to an, an Australian commentator talk about that, and uh, he's, he was talking to an American audience, and he just said, do you know how strange it is for the rest of the world that the, the, most, the, the highest government in your land is sending out letters to high schools on how they handle their bathroom policies. Like that seems like government overreach to everybody except for us, right? Like it's just a crazy world that we are in, but that, uh, that was 2016 and that was when that shift started to happen. Uh, 2017, National Geographic published an issue on uh, that they simply called the gender revolution. That was fascinating because if you go back and look at those covers of uh, those National Geographics, first of all, 
National Geographic is not Glamour Magazine. Uh, it's not even Time Magazine. It's National Geographic. That's a bizarre place to uh, have the gender revolution publicized. But between the two different covers that were appearing in newsstands, there were nine different people on those covers uh, representing nine different variations of gender. And there was only one person on uh, in all of those nine people that is uh, what's called cisgender. So that would be, we'll talk terms next week, but that would be somebody who is uh, living into, they believe their, um, their gender is also their biological gender. And that was a born male who saw himself as male on the cover. And a, a lot of commentators looked at that and said, it's fascinating that with nine people out there, there's not uh, one female who's willing to declare herself to be female. And that has become a real interesting move within uh, the, uh, the culture. The whole idea of gender dysphoria, we'll talk about that term again uh, next week as we start to define terms. Uh, gender dysphoria was strongly a uh, born male uh, disorder or way of thinking. Uh, we'll talk about the difference between that in a couple weeks too. Um, but it was strongly uh, oriented towards males up until the last seven to eight years where the shift has been dramatic to the point where now, um, depending on the statistics, which are all a bit uh, crazy to research, two or maybe even four to one females over males are uh, experiencing some form of gender dysphoria and are seeking either to transition or to uh, recognize, uh, be recognized differently than female. So the bunch to that, again, we'll unpack that as we go, but that was where that National Geographic magazine uh, jumped in. I have a paragraph there for you on Jazz Jennings. Uh, Jazz Jennings is a really important figure in transgenderism to seek to understand transgenderism. She uh, has, uh, born, uh, born a male, uh, was very, very early on in the public spotlight, uh, as early as four, experiencing a high level of gender dysphoria. Um, by age seven, was being interviewed by Bar Barbara Walters, and uh, the transition, the social transition that Jazz experienced began when she was five years old, uh, four to five years old. Um, now she's uh, fully transitioned at this point, but uh, she had a preteen interview uh, in 2011 with Rosie O'Donnell. Um, she had a documentary that came out at the same time. Uh, her book, I Am Jazz, uh, is, uh, was released in 2014, the same time her reality series came out. I Am Jazz is marketed towards uh, preschool to third graders, and so that's kind of the target audience for I Am Jazz. Uh, her second book, Being Jazz, is marketed more toward the teen market. And so uh, those are uh, a lot of places. Uh, it's, uh, it, they're not in every school by any means, but they are certainly in uh, school libraries in uh, lots of places, starting in that uh, preschool, kindergarten uh, age group. Um, Jazz is now uh, just started uh, her college career at Harvard, and so she's uh, continuing to move on a, a of loud and uh, very prominent voice within the transgender movement. So that just gives you a, a little bit of a framework. I could go on and on and on. There are so many things that are out there. Uh, we'll hit a little bit more of uh, transgender activism next week and, and what, that, what that looks like. Uh, what I want you to see is at this stage, 2022, this is the air that we breathe. This is normal. This is just the way life is for our kids growing up in a world like this is just the way it is. They've only ever 
consciously experienced this kind of gender-fluid way of, of looking at gender. And it was incredibly fast. Like, if you look back, 2010, this whole shift has happened culturally in the U.S., uh, globally as well, but uh, I'm looking at the U.S. as a microcosm, in like 10 years, not even 10 years. If you were with us in the biblical sexuality class, we talked about the way the, the, uh, the, uh, the activist portion of the homosexual movement uh, started, it took almost a half a century to start to see widestream, uh, mainstream acceptance of homosexuality. This was like less than half a decade. It was an incredibly fast transition. This moved so, so quickly. Um, we'll talk about some of the reasons for that, but here's what I want you to hear. Th that's too fast for doctors and psychologists to keep up with it. Psychiatrists don't know what to call the patients that are coming in and sitting and talking with them. They don't know how to respond to them, which means it's, if it's too fast for doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists, it's way too fast for pastors. It's way too fast for parents. It's way too fast for the church. That's why we feel so behind on it. It's why we feel so disoriented with it. Like We haven't had time to absorb it and process it. So things like uh, the, the way that ethics are seen through either a biblical or a non-biblical ethical framework haven't even been processed yet. I mean, ethicists are not there yet. That's how fast this has moved. And so as we dive into this class, there's lots of really good information out there. There's, uh, I'm gonna try to call that down and try to make it uh, uh, hopefully understandable and, and able to be engaged, but it has happened incredibly quickly. So the question is, how do, how do we respond? And, and I just want to throw out a couple things that I, I've heard along the way as I've been prepping for this class. Um, the, the, probably the biggest response that I've heard, I'm not going to call any names out, but I could give you some names if you're interested, are people who would say something like, probably some of you would say this, well, that class is really easy to teach. You say there's men, there's women, class dismissed. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Why are we doing this? It doesn't seem like we really need to have this long conversation, right? No big deal. Um, and and I get the heart of what's being said, but there are two, there's lots of reasons why that's a problem, two primary reasons why that's a problem. First one is this, um, that, that's not reality. So if you have invented a time machine that can take you back 100 years, we can have that conversation, but that's not reality right now. And that means if we don't learn to have this conversation in an effective way, you, and I, I I, I'm not trying to say this in an alarmist way or in a way that sounds too strong. You, you will not be able to engage your children on this issue. They, they live in this world, and they're not moving out of this world. So if we don't learn to engage it, if all we have is there's men, there's women, class dismissed, you're not going to be able to have a, a healthy conversation with your kids. Um, I can tell you story after story, I'm not going to spend time there today, of that perspective being spoken and kids just like hightailing it out. And by the way, um, Child Protective Services are on their side in that instance, which is a, another really scary thing that we can talk about as uh, this whole thing unfolds. So we have to learn to have the conversation. It's vitally important to have the conversation. Um, not everybody is dealing with this in the spotlight. Not everybody is an activist. The vast majority of people, like uh, statistics are saying upwards of 80 to 90 people, uh, any, 80 to 90% of people who are experiencing some kind of gender dysphoria just want to have a resolution and they want it to go away. 
They're not trying to um, go into another gender's bathrooms. They're not trying to change the laws. They just want it to go away. And so we need to have a recognition that the spotlight people, the I am jazz people, they're, they're not the face of transgenderism. They're just all that you see on YouTube. They're all that you see on TV. But the, the face of transgenderism is much, much broader than that. So that's one, one reason. It doesn't take account uh, reality. Uh, the other one is it doesn't take into account people. There, there are people behind all of this, and the best writing on transgenderism right now, the best work that's being done on it, is being done at a pastoral level as well as a theological level. It's um, early on, there were a lot of things being released at a theological level that is really helpful to think through what's going on, but it's not helpful in actually engaging the real people who are involved in these issues. Um, the, the heartbreak of whether it's parents walking through this or kids walking through it or uh, kids walking through it with their parents who are walking through it, husbands and wives who are walking through it with a spouse that is now deciding to transition or start to uh, come out as transgender. These are real issues that are coming from real trauma and real struggle. And if we make it too black and white, we lose tons of people along the way. Um, suicide rates among transgender people, depending on your statistics, are somewhere um, upwards of 10 times higher than the general population, and I've seen uh, numbers that are staggeringly higher than that. It's, a, it's a, a very difficult road to walk, and if we are to represent the love of Jesus well, we have to represent that, the love of Jesus to people. That's, uh, where the, there's no prizes for being right as we stand alone over to the side. Uh, we, we need to love people well. And so that's part of why we can't go on that extreme. But there's another extreme. How do we respond? Well, uh, the other extreme is, well, it's really not that big of a deal. Like, like why are we talking about this? Because if men want to wear women's clothes and wear makeup, isn't that just a cultural construct anyway? Like, like in Scotland, they wear kilts. Like, is it really that big of a deal? There's all kinds of people that, uh, that wear all kinds of different face paint. Isn't that the same thing? Like, does it matter? If a woman wants to become a man, like, it, does that really make that big of a difference? If, if, if she wants to be referred to as he or uh, they, isn't language just a cultural construct anyway? Like, who cares what pronoun we use? Doesn't, it does, just doesn't make a difference. That side very quickly gets to and honestly, uh, gender, uh, gender reassignment surgery, or now it's often called sex confirmation surgery, uh, uh, surgery's really like it's just plastic surgery anyway, right? Like, whatever, you're adding parts and taking parts away. It's just like liposuction or a facelift. Like, who cares? Like, you, you just move into that. Does it really matter? And I think what you're going to see over the next couple of weeks is, yes, it actually does really matter. Um, but that doesn't mean that we need to make it so black and white that we uh, stop being able to engage people. And so that's uh, where we're going to try to go over the next couple of weeks. And so to do that, we're going to have a conversation around something that has, uh, at least on the surface, absolutely nothing to do with gender. So um, if you are on your notes, 
um, we're going to walk through an overview of redemptive history. Doesn't that sound exciting? So we're going to walk through redemptive history. I have a, a, a more finalized drawing on your paper. You can take notes on that as you want to. Um, but if you try to boil down redemptive history beginning to end, you start with creation. God made things a certain way, uh, and what Genesis 1 and again in Genesis 2 tells us is that God made them variations of good and very good. The, the world of Genesis 1 and 2 was as it should be. Unfortunately, Genesis 2 leads to Genesis 3, which leads into the fall. So the, the story of the Bible is at the very beginning, creation gives way to fall. Fall is brokenness and destruction that comes from rebellion. So it's important to understand that theologically, fall is not simply that people have sin. Fall is that the world is broken that the, the way that the creation is intended to be is no longer the way the creation is. So if you read through uh, Genesis 3 and you read through the way that God speaks about the fall to Adam and Eve and to Satan himself, the declarations that God's making, um, they're, they're falsely headed as judgments, but they're really just declarations of reality. This is what's happening. It's one of the things that I find most fascinating about Jesus' ministry. Jesus very rarely said, uh, asked people to do something. He just said, this, this is how it is. Like, you know, if you put all of your hope in money, uh, your, your heart's going to go there. He didn't say, don't put your hope in money. He said, if you put all your hope in money, your heart's going to follow it. He's just like, this is a, a statement about reality. Genesis 3 is a statement about reality. God the Father comes to Adam and Eve and to Satan and says, this is what now is happening. This is what reality is like. And reality is the relationship that we have with God is broken. The relationship that we have with creation is broken. The relationship that we have with one another is broken. And even the relationship that we have with ourself is broken. The fall has broken all of those areas. And so the way that creation propagates itself is broken. The way that creation uh, unfolds and is engaged by people is broken. The fall has affected every single area of life. So as you read through the Old Testament, you see the wrestle with the fall. And I won't go through all the details of that, um, but as you read through, you see all the, the, the wrestling with the fall. That gives way to the promise uh, that was as early as Genesis chapter 3, repeated all the way through the Old Testament, the promise of redemption. And so redemption is that, that time when God steps in, as we're studying in the book of Exodus right now, this is the, the larger Exodus, the bigger story. This is when that uh, microcosm story of God stepping in and releasing people from slavery, that's when that happens on a cosmic level. So when Jesus comes, uh, Jesus comes redeeming his people through the power of the cross. So I'm going really, really quickly through redemptive history here, but the cross, uh, the, the cross means that sin and death and hell are judged, that Jesus bears the judgment that we deserve, and through the resurrection, ushers in the new kingdom that's coming. So there's a redemptive kingdom. So what you see here on the screen and what you see on your paper is this dual reality. So if you look at the dotted line at the top and that kind of uh, bottom down there uh, on the other side of where redemption is, that, that's the world we live in. We live in a world that is fully encompassing both of those things. So we live in the kingdom that is the already and the not yet. The kingdom is here, and the kingdom is not yet fully here. We are 
redeemed, but we are not yet fully redeemed. The world around us is broken and is in the process of restoration. But ultimately, there is a restoration that's coming. And so the, the, the longing of the songs that we sang at the end of our prayer time that actually led us in, the longing is for, for restoration. The, the longing is not just for, like, I, I want the bad part of my life to be done. The longing is for all of the wrong things to be made right, for creation to be brought again under the fullness of the headship of Jesus. The, the, the Genesis 2 world is what redemption is, is longing for and what the Bible calls restoration. So that four-act process, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is a vital framework for us to uh, walk through and start to understand as we talk about this, uh, this whole discussion around gender. Uh, vitally important to recognize we live in the gap in between those two things. And those who are up at that dotted line are going to act and live and think differently than those who are at the bottom of the base of the cross. That's just the way it is. If, if we live in a world that is already and not yet, those who have entered into the already are going to see the world differently than those who have not yet entered into the already. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a, a distinction there that's vitally important for us to get. Um, so we experience both fall and redemption at the same time personally and neither one of them exclusively. So let me say that again. We, as individual people, no matter how sanctified you are, no matter how far along your journey you are, we experience both fall and redemption at the same time and neither one of them exclusively. So your most redeemed moments are still influenced by your sinful nature, and your darkest, most sinful moments are still influenced by your redeemed nature if you're a follower of Jesus. You have both of those things. But no one has already gotten to restoration. Jesus is the only one who's over there waiting for the rest of us, right? The rest of us are still in the middle there somewhere. So that is vitally important for us to get as we, uh, as we continue this conversation. Um, to a lesser degree, the rest of the world's like that too. So the world around you is also influenced by the fall, and even if they're not redeemed people as the followers of Jesus, they are part of a world that is in the process of being redeemed through the influence of people who are redeemed by Jesus. So things like the way that we engage culture and the way that we engage the world around us and the way that we engage this gender conversation actually influence the world that unredeemed people are living in. So historically, the world that we live in today is dramatically different than the world of uh, 50 BC. And one of the primary reasons for that is that there have been redeemed people throughout the globe over these last 2,000 years who are living out the restoration mission of God. So as we engage the mission of God, fully or not as fully, we actually influence the culture, and that culture influences people who are followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. Am I tracking? Are you all good with me? This is a little complex, but most of you don't look like you're falling asleep yet, so we're okay. Okay, good. So, so what I want to do is I want to tell you that same story through a slightly different lens. 
So uh, if you go to the back of your paper, there is a, a verse from Genesis chapter 1. We're going to come back to this verse a lot over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a lot about that verse that we're not going to talk about tonight. Here's the part I want you to get tonight. That word image is a Hebrew word that I can't pronounce and I'm not going to try to, um, but when it's translated to Greek, the Greek word is icon, spelled with an E, E-I-K-O-N, and that is, uh, I gave you Scott McKnight's definition, humans representing God in this world, earth's divine representatives. When, when the Bible says that we bear the image of God, the Bible is not saying we look like God. Now, now there, there is likely a, uh, some kind of a, uh, a, a appearance thing that is similar. We don't know exactly what that looks like. But that's not the primary message of the scriptures, that we look like God is not what he's saying. What, what the scriptures are saying is we are the representative of God, the, uh, the image of God, the icon of God on earth. So in uh, ancient kingdoms, a king would create an icon of himself that would be placed in an out, outer territory, and that icon would be a representative of the fact that he also had a representative that was ruling there. Even though he may never get to that territory, that icon says he's in charge there. That same thing is true for us in Genesis chapter one. When we're created, we're created in the image and the likeness of God, meaning that we are intended, Genesis one and two, to engage in the work of God in the world, to be his representative rule in the world around us. Th that idea is this idea of a created icon. So you see that first um, beautiful picture there of, um, Oh, I lost my people. Oh, wait, there we go. Okay, there we go. I'll we'll walk through there. Okay, so created icon. So you see that really great clip art of that egg. So um, you don't need to look like an egg, but um, it's the easiest thing to find cracked on Google. Uh, so uh, an icon is a, a full embodied representation of God in the midst of good creation. So this is a good representative of God in the world. The fall leads us into being cracked icons. And so that cracked icon is a broken representation of God in the midst of a broken creation. So that means that every aspect of us is broken and every aspect of creation is broken. And so uh, we can argue to the extent that that goes, whether you're a five-point Calvinist and you go all the way down to total depravity or you say that there are things within the image of God that still come out of us, you can have that debate on your own time if you'd like. What I, what I would simply say is the brokenness that Genesis 2 speaks of is pervasive and hits every single area of us and every single area of life. So that's the idea of a cracked icon. We still are representing God we're just not doing it very well. So we're, we're still in that same role, right? We're still ruling over creation. If you go back to uh, the, the cultural mandate that goes right before, verse 26, right before this uh, verse in verse 27, it says that we're to fill the earth and subdue it. We're still doing that. We're just subduing it for bad purposes most of the time, right? It's like there, there's all kinds of rule that's happening through cracked icons. They're just messed up. Like you can just like op open the news. You don't need me to... Uh, to walk you through all those. 
The cracked icon through Jesus gives way to the redeemed icon. The redeemed icon is still broken, not yet fully restored, but redeemed, repaired. Uh, what I would love to be able to do if I was a, a talented enough graphic person is to put the crack in there and put like a little Band-Aid over it because that would maybe look a little bit closer to what we're really going for here. The, the idea is the crack is still there, but the crack is repaired, redeemed, and now in the midst of a broken world, the, the redeemed icons are doing the work of God to bring restoration into the brokenness of the world. So if you go back to that chart, now you see the, the, the created icon over there creation, but the cracked icon is down there at fall. So then when redemption happens, you have both kinds of icons walking around the world. Now this is, this is the important part you need to get. Because not all icons are redeemed right now, right? So you have all kinds of people in your life who are not yet redeemed by Jesus, who are, are not yet followers of Christ, and they're still living as cracked icons on this side of the cross. And you and I are living as redeemed icons who still have a cracked nature, right? So the cracked icon is still within us as we live in a, in a redeemed way. So that means that there are some people who are not at all experiencing in their bodies any sense of the redemptive work of Christ. They're experiencing solely the cracked nature, the, the fallen nature, and that's it. That's all they're experiencing. But there are other people who are experiencing both of them simultaneously. So we're experiencing, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're experiencing both the redeemed nature and the cracked nature both at the same time. That's Romans chapter seven. If you wanna kind of anchor that somewhere, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter seven. What I wanna do, I don't do, and what I don't wanna do, that's the thing I do. It's this wrestling with the, the brokenness of our sin nature. And uh, by the way, uh, you, if you're honest with yourself, you should be able to come up with like 15 examples of that today, like, right? It's like, we, we know this is true. This is not something that you need to have proof text for. Like you, you get this, like we're redeemed, we have this longing for what's right, and we're broken, and we have this longing for what's wrong. And we're constantly trying to figure out which, which Brian is going to get behind the, the steering wheel today. Like, is it the good, good Brian or the bad Brian? Like, what's, what's going to be happening here? That, that's, that's where we live. At some point, there will be a time where all of the icons are fully restored, where we are... Uh, before Jesus, and I, I'm not talking here about uh, universal reconciliation. I'm not saying that every single person is going to follow Jesus. That's the class for a different time. Uh, what I am saying is that there will be a time where you and I and all those who have chosen to follow Jesus will not have any sense of the cracked nature anymore. That will be completely gone. That is not yet. That's vitally important to this conversation because so much of this conversation operates around a perspective that says we should be there, but we're not there. We, you're, you, you're, you're not going to get there yet until Jesus comes back. There's going to be a time where we're all going to get there immediately. But until then, you're, you're experiencing both of these things at the same time. And there's no other way to do it. That's the only way you can experience the world. So uh, four big things that I want you to see within that, they're listed there under those key concepts. Um, the, 
there are people who are both cracked and redeemed. So if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. There are people who are both cracked and redeemed. Those who are cracked are living in a world that is cracked and is being restored. So what I'm saying there is those who have not yet experienced any sense of redemption are living in a world that is in a restoration process that's coming from you and I as redeemed people. There is no one that's fully restored, and the creation itself is not yet fully restored. And so that that redemption process happens through us. Is everybody tracking with that so far? That that becomes a vitally important foundation because most of the the questions that you're going to have and most of the questions that we wrestle with are part of that framework. The, The big question we have to constantly ask is, which nature are we operating out of? That, that's, that's the heart of this gender question as it relates to Christians. Which nature are we operating out of? So we'll talk about all of it in a lot of specificity. Next week, we're going to go into all kinds of different stuff. Um, for today, here's what I want you to see. Um, this is where we're going. Um, so next week, we're going to look at the current state of confusion. We're going to look at the uh, life that we have. Um, I'm going to try to unpack for you the activist point of view. I'm going to unpack for you the, um, uh, I don't know how to say it, the black and white Christian point of view, the the, uh, point of view that says, why are we having this conversation? Uh, Try to unpack that for you a little bit and then try to uh, hopefully offer a framework that can help us to start to engage a conversation in a helpful way. Um, And then uh, on the 16th, we'll start to talk about responding with grace. What's it look like for us to live in this world and engage people in this world in a a healthy way? Uh, What's it look like for us to engage followers of Jesus who are wrestling with this and uh, those who are not yet followers of Jesus who are wrestling with this? Because those, those, both of those situations are very real um, and like, like so real that there are significant numbers of people on Sunday morning, sitting in church around you, who are in the midst of wrestling with gender dysphoria. This is, this is not a, a fringe thing. This is not like, maybe I know somebody like that. I know, like, like, we're talking 12 years ago, you probably even never even heard the word transgenderism. And now, like, literally people sitting in the pew with you are wrestling with it. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. We'll try to unpack that a little bit and talk through it. But you need to understand, this is not a fringe thing. Um, there, there's a lot of people in this situation. And then finally, at the back end, um, there's a bunch of, um, uh, of technicalities to this. Um, things like, um, one of the first questions that will probably get asked is the question about intersex people. I'm not going to talk to you about intersex people today. If you don't know that term, we'll define it next week. But um, there, there are very specific, so the gender dysphoria has um, a, a like, somewhere between nine and 20 different kinds of variations. And there's also a variety of physical variations. So intersex, which uh, just as a brief definition, is being born in a uh, gender questionable sense in some way. Um, That has between four and 10 different forms that it can take. So there's all kinds of different stuff here. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about something that's just like a clear black and white, everybody's dealing with the same thing. I think one of the most helpful things I've heard, um, uh, a guy named Mark Yarhouse, who's uh, probably the uh, leading Christian thinker on this, uh, what, what he says is, if you met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Like, you, that's it. Because 
everybody's experience is that different. And so um, trying to, like, to get this into a, like, this is the way that transgender people react, there's no such thing as transgender people react. Like, everybody reacts uniquely and differently because everybody's experience is dramatically different. And so we'll try to unpack that as best we can, and then we'll spend a lot of time on the 23rd uh, walking through questions.